0: Hi there, this is Laura with Making Contact. Before we start the show, we just want to thank everyone who donated or shared our crowdfunding campaign. Because of you, we surpassed our goal. Yay! You can follow the work of our four storytelling fellows on our website, radioproject.org. While the crowdfunding campaign is over, you can still donate to help keep the fellowship growing. Just go to our site and click on the fellowship page. Now for the show.
1: I'm Jasmine Lopez and this is Making Contact. On August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina ripped through the southern Gulf Coast.
2: Bringing with her all kinds of problems. Buildings have collapsed. There are reports from New Orleans of uh, people trapped in buildings that have come down around them, but the rescuers can't get out. It's simply too dangerous right now in those plus 135 mile an hour winds.
1: The long neglected Lake Pontchartrain levee broke, flooding most of New Orleans. An entire ward of this city, the ninth ward, appears to be up to its rooftops in water. Government preparation and rescue efforts catastrophically failed. Uh, As I left tonight, uh, darkness of course had fallen and you can hear people yelling for help. You can hear the dogs yelping all of them stranded, all of them hoping someone will come." About 80 percent of the New Orleans area was underwater, displacing more than 400,000 residents. Many drowned in their homes, and more than 1,800 died across the Gulf Coast region. Katrina left a trail of devastation stretching for years to come. Some people didn't have a home to return to, and now 10 years later, It's estimated that there are nearly 100,000 fewer African Americans living in the city of New Orleans. Drawn by reconstruction work, the number of Latino immigrants has nearly doubled. On this edition of Making Contact, we're taking you to New Orleans. We'll talk to residents about how the city has transformed since Katrina and the resulting friction. Construction after Hurricane Katrina drew thousands of people from India, Brazil, Mexico, Honduras, and other Latin American countries. Workers were charged with pulling dead bodies from abandoned homes and rebuilding New Orleans. But the influx of migrant workers also increased immigration crackdowns.
3: Aquí para al Obama...
1: That's Luis Medina at a march led by the New Orleans Workers' Center for Racial Justice demanding an end to the separation of families because of deportations. People marched in support of President Obama's Deferred Action for Parents of Americans program during a hearing that took place at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans on July 10, 2015. José Monterrubio, an undocumented reconstruction worker from Mexico, was also one of hundreds of protesters demanding an end to ICE abuses and the deportation of immigrants. He came to New Orleans one month after Katrina, to work and help rebuild the city, but was detained by ICE agents years later. On a recent drive, Monterrubio shared what happened.
4: First, there weren't tools, there were no materials. There's no light, no water, no food. It was difficult.
1: Drawn by a bounty of construction jobs, Jose Monterrubio came to New Orleans after Katrina. As we drive down Canal Street, he describes early reconstruction efforts.
4: But little by little, where we would go clean, you could find a shovel or something. With that very tool, you could work. It was like that for months and months. We haven't finished. It's not finished 100 percent. The reconstruction isn't
5: complete.
1: It's estimated that over 40,000 Latin American people descended on New Orleans to help rebuild the Big Easy. People came from all over the world, Mexico, Honduras, Brazil, even India. Primarily, the majority came from Mexico and Central America. But not all reconstruction workers have received a warm welcoming to the city.
4: Do you want me to show you where they got me? It's right there.
1: Monterrubio points out where he says he was corralled and nabbed by ICE agents in 2012.
4: That morning, I had work, but the boss told me, wait for me at this hour because I'm not going to arrive early. We waited for him. Honestly, I never thought they were going to get me early in the morning. It was a sting. The agents were going round and around and around. Another was walking, another on this side. I couldn't run. I couldn't
1: run. Monterrubio was trapped. Often ICE agents assert they're looking for a similar-looking fugitive among a group of day laborers, but then will arrest everybody. That's what happened to Jose Luis Gomez in 2011. Gomez became part of the Southern 32, a group of New Orleans immigrant leaders that faced deportation for speaking up about civil and labor rights violations. When Gomez's lawyers sought an evidentiary hearing and requested subpoenas, the government refused to make the agents available for questioning or provide the warrants for the alleged missing fugitive, his photo, and other evidence. According to the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse, TRAC, an organization at Syracuse University, ICE refuses to release any good data on where apprehensions take place. But Border Patrol apprehensions in the New Orleans area more than doubled after Katrina and continued to increase until 2009. ICE dragnets targeting Latino-day laborers have become so commonplace that in 2013 the City Council passed a resolution requesting the Orleans Parish Sheriff refrain from unlawfully detaining undocumented immigrants for indefinite periods of time.
5: Finally,
4: they took me to Basile. I was there a month. When they found me, I was tied here, my waist, my
5: feet.
1: Repeated cases like these prompted the formation of Congress of Day Laborers, also called Congreso. It's an initiative of the New Orleans Workers' Center for Racial Justice that organizes day laborers and provides education on their civil and labor rights. Monterrubio was taken to the South Louisiana Correctional Center in Basile. But because he was a member of Congreso, he had legal representation.
5: After that,
4: the lawyers of Congress of Day Laborers fought for my case. The judge closed the case, and here I continue my work with the Congress of Day
5: Laborers.
1: Monterrubio and I arrived to the location of a weekly meeting for Congreso members. On the steps of First Grace United Methodist Church, families chat and gather around vendors selling tamales, tacos, or chata. Shortly after gathering and eating, the people at the food stands enter the church for the Congreso meeting. Compañero, gracias por venir. O tener otra reunión más. Otro miércoles. An organizer greets attendees, and later Monterrubio acts out a skit where they discuss the importance of carrying a Congreso identification card. La policía. necesito es que, su licencia, señora, por favor.
4: Police, I need your license, ma'am. Please, some identification.
1: The ID card lists a person's name and date of birth and states that the holder wishes to exercise his or her right to remain silent and to consult with a lawyer before answering questions. Mm-hmm.
4: Fine, this ID is fine. I'll just give you a ticket for no license.
5: Policía. <laughs>
1: Monterrubio is committed to working as a community leader through Congreso. He says that the fear of deportation is always present, but work is why he came to this country. It's why he came to New Orleans.
4: no, uno no sabe... Because you don't know if you're going to be deported or let go. Fear. I haven't committed a crime, so I'm relaxed. It's not my country. I came to
5: work.
1: While New Orleans is considered a sanctuary city for undocumented immigrants, the House passed a bill on July 23, 2015, cutting off federal funding for such cities. Meanwhile, a similar bill is being offered by Senator David Vitter, and Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal says he intends on ending sanctuary cities through his proposed partners in crime law. As Monterrubio put it, the reconstruction efforts aren't over. People will still come to New Orleans to work, and contractors will still continue to recruit workers. Up next, we hear from New Orleans-based artist Jose torres and his poetry dedicated to immigrant reconstruction workers.
6: In the summer of 2009, the Southern Poverty Law Center released their data that 80% of Latino immigrant reconstruction workers in post-Katrina New Orleans were victims of wage theft. Thousands of workers were not paid for their labor, and often contractors called immigration to have them deported after a job was done, or the NOPD to run them off. Some contractors took matters into their own hands and simply pulled a gun instead of the promised cash for work. If we ever have the courage and will to deeply investigate these practices and human rights violations, the recovery era for Latino immigrant workers will go down as one of the most extensive cases of labor abuse in U.S. history. This is but a mere poem against a tidal wave of atrocities my immigrant brothers and sisters suffered while reconstructing and resurrecting the flooded Crescent City. It was hard living in a Big Easy for many workers here, and they continue to suffer brutal deportation raids and wage theft. Los Invisibles Immigrantes of Post-Katrina, New Orleans Reconstruction Apocalypse Blues. One, corporate coyotes, smuggled immigrant workers. Resembling a migratory locust of reconstruction angels, they descended upon the fragile Pueblo in thousands, miles y miles, by foot, by car, by trains, but initial workforce was brought by truckloads, by Halliburton, awarded first no-bid reconstruction contract, Cheney's pals, subsidiaries, KBR, and Shaw Group, playing corporate coyotes on the slide, smuggled men inside the ruins while we were exiled. My name is Jose Torres Tama. No, Jose Torres Tama in el español, so Jose Torres Tama. I've been living in New Orleans since 1984. It is here where I've cultivated my many voices uh, after studying fine arts, traditional drawing and literature up north in New York City. I studied at the Art Students League. I went to college at a state college in New Jersey. Um, it is here that I found my Real performative and political voice. One hotel flew workers in from Brazil. Another from Peru to rebuild clean human waste from the Superdome. Pull cadavers from the Morial Convention Center to reconstruct, to hammer, to sheetrock. Put up roof after roof after roof after roof. Some died in collateral construction apocalypse blues. As a place to live in, New Orleans has become my own Macondo sort of like Garcia Marquez's mythical city, because it's a magical city. And it is a very Latin city as well, very Caribbean. Um, it's often forgotten that we had a Spanish colonial legacy here. You go to the French Quarter and you, and you see the signs that say, um, when New Orleans was the capital of the Spanish provinces of Louisiana, this street bore the name of Calle Real for Royal Street and you'll see the dates, 1761 to 1803, and that's the Spanish colonial legacy. Forty years of the Spanish rule, yes, they were slaveholders, like the French, right? Um, but they also left quite a legacy, including the fact that the French Quarter is a misnomer. It should be called the Spanish Quarter because those, that entire section was rebuilt by Spanish during the Spanish colonial period, but rebuilt by Spanish-speaking people, the Spanish, the Creoles, and the slaves. You know, I'm a, I'm a mestizo, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm part of that Spanish colonial legacy. So I was also inspired by that because of its connection, in addition to the fact that during the slave trade, it was a slave triangle between Havana, New Orleans, and Veracruz. So there's a big connection. We're the only city, one of the few, I think, and maybe the only one in the United States with statues of Simón Bolívar, right? Right there on Basin Street. And down a little bit further, you find one of um, Benito Juarez that was created to note during the 50s with the particular uh, mayor there, Shapiro, and as a means to establish the relationship of New Orleans as a gateway to the Americas. And it was that disposable brown paper bag people branded illegal for a 21st century slave labor fiesta, invisible in big freedom parades because the city that care has forgotten to applaud thousands of immigrant hands who resurrected New Orleans from her deathbed. What's amazing about El Congreso is that I give so much kudos to el Congreso de Jornaleros, the Congress of Day Laborers here because they have become activists, you know, out of necessity for the violations of their human rights during this 10-year period uh, as they were reconstructing the city. And uh, I had mentioned earlier that in 2009, the summer of 2009, in June, I believe, the Southern Southern Poverty Law Center released its data and research based on interviews over the course of a couple of years that 80% of the Latino immigrant workers who aided the reconstruction up to that point had been victims of wage theft. That is an astounding, astonishing, and tragic number. 80%, right? So in fact, this poem, uh, Los Invisibles, of the post-Katrina New Orleans Reconstruction of Apocalypse Blues, begins with that as a point of departure. Quite often the poems that are in this collection called Immigrant Dreams and Alien Nightmares, which is a collection of 25 years of bilingual poems, are sort of docu-poems. They're inspired by... <clears throat> Real life things that have been happening, uh, and especially the last section that's dedicated to Mi Gente Valiente, you know, my courageous um, brown paperback people, right? Latino laborers reignited engines of the tourist industry, salvaged flooded hotels before condemnation by health officials, rebuilt churches, schools, government buildings, galleries, museums, and even City Hall with Mayor Nagin stupidly joking to an all-white business core and press of Chocolate City overrun by Mexican workers. Laughter and applause followed that October 2005 faux pas, but Brazilians restored the Waldenberg Art Center at Tulane played soccer during breaks, mostly working the shadow economy in the clear of day with filthy labor like our black brothers before, crippled for a big, bad democracy that spits out colored men like chewed tobacco into worn spittoons whose stench is evident today in the apartheid economic state. We know this. We remember. We urge others not to forget that these, these... These deep-fried South Plantation fortunes were deep-fried in Ku Klux Klan terror, and post-Katrina Reconstruction became new cotton for a lingering legacy of abuse. My brown paperback people, the new black for a Jabba, the hot gluttonous apparatus, feeding on our men because it can. Can I get a witness? Oh, come, oh ye faithful. Oh, come, let us explode you. Oh, America, the beautiful. You make my life a nightmare with such addiction to slave labor. Oh, America, your underbelly is my undertow. Do you remember? Did you hire one? Did you cheat one? And at one of the most recent meetings of the Congreso, I was blown away because they said, La migra no descansa. These immigration agents are not resting and they're terrorizing the community. And what's even more painful for me to witness is that the regular media here does not pay any any attention to it unless the immigrants throw themselves into, into cars or stop traffic like they do. And I have such deep respect for the Congress of Day Laborers because they have helped to bring attention to the struggles. And these are people that should be celebrated But you're not going to hear the mayor say, we welcome our great Latino immigrant laborers who have helped to reconstruct this city, and we know that we've exploited their labor and that right now they're under attack by immigration agents, and we're basically doing nothing about it. But we welcome the fact that this city has been repaired by immigrant labor whose basically human rights we have violated. I don't think the mayor is going to say that. (laughs)
1: You're listening to artist José Torres-Tama reading from his book Immigrant Dreams, Alien Nightmares and talking about the struggle of the immigrant reconstruction workers post-Katrina. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to
6: Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia and South Africa. To find out how to donate, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making contact.
1: Ward in New Orleans was decimated after Katrina, threatening to erase the history of this largely poor African-American district, which is rich in both community and controversy. Producer Andrew Stelzer visits the Lower Ninth Ward and talks with people about preserving its dynamic history.
2: If you remember seeing the Lower Ninth Ward on TV, it probably still looks pretty much the same these days, minus the floodwaters. Scattering of homes amidst blocks and blocks of fields of grass. There's still some half-collapsed houses. It's hard to believe there were once thousands of people living here. But it's not a complete ghost town. By the intersection of Urquhart and Deslawn streets, there's a man mowing his lawn, a couple other folks chatting on the sidewalk, and a gray and purple house on the corner with banners hanging off the porch. Hey, hey there. Hello. Good to see you. You too. Beck Cooper greets me out front.
0: So this is the, oops, sorry, this is the Lower Ninth Ward Living Museum, and it goes in chronological order.
2: Cooper's not from New Orleans, but she's learning fast by talking to lots and lots of natives. That's part of her job as director of the Lower Ninth Ward Living Museum, to understand the history of this neighborhood and communicate its meaning to the public. As soon as I walk into the museum, I see a big map hanging on the wall to help get me oriented.
0: So this map of New Orleans, it's just a standard tour map. And you see like the French Quarter, the Warehouse District, you see Canal right where the Mississippi River bends. And you would um, come upon the Lower Ninth Ward, it just kind of cuts out, um, which is just sort of a symbolic marking of how neglected the neighborhood is.
2: Cooper tells me the neighborhood began as an escaped slave colony where blacks and Native Americans coexisted. There was even a cypress swamp that acted as a natural buffer against hurricanes, but that swamp was removed in 1923, and in its place sits what's known as the Industrial Canal, which geographically cuts off the area from the rest of the city. And
0: then over here, I'm going to point out this picture, which is pretty incredible, Um, the 1927 Mississippi flood um, where it's actually documented that the government dynamited the levees and sacrificed the Lower Ninth Ward to save other parts of New Orleans. It's interesting when you think about the stories you hear during Betsy and Katrina of people who in their personal accounts claim that the levees were blown up or that it was done purposefully and that's seen as this giant conspiracy theory Um, but when you see the history all laid out it makes you really think (laughs) about how outlandish that really is.
2: But true to New Orleans' spirit, the museum is not just designed to teach about injustices, but to celebrate the neighborhood's cultural history. Famous musicians like Fats Domino and Mahalia Jackson hail from the Lower Ninth, and it played an important role in the civil rights era.
0: The Lower Ninth Ward was the kind of ground zero for desegregation in the Deep South and the first elementary school to be desegregated. There is this incredible, vast, rich history of this neighborhood that is being completely destroyed and forgotten about as we speak.
2: The museum opened in 2013 and already has had several thousand visitors. Half of those are New Orleanians and half of them are tourists.
0: I think the goal is to redirect that disaster tourism traffic here and have people who are already coming in for good intentions leave with a real understanding of the history here um, and hear it through the voices of people who lived it but without burdening them to tell their story again and again and without driving through the neighborhood um, in a voyeuristic fashion with cameras hanging out of the window. Um, And at, at the very least, be able to go home and return back to their communities and act with us to correct some of the myths about the Lower Ninth Ward.
2: In just the first three years after Katrina, well over one million people came to the Gulf Coast to help. But the expectations of those volunteers and what kind of help is needed has been a topic of contentious debate. One of the most high-profile relief efforts was the brainchild of actor Brad Pitt. His project, called Make It Right, builds energy-efficient homes in the Lower Ninth Ward. These homes look really, really different from the traditional New Orleans old wooden houses. And only a few blocks from the Living History Museum, these space-age modern homes dot the landscape. Altogether, there are about 150 of them. I spoke to Robert Green, who lives in one of the Make It Right homes, about the Lower Ninth Ward's past, present, and future. Green has lived here since he was 12 years old, and he lost his mother and a three-year-old granddaughter in the flood that followed the failure of the levees.
3: I'll take a walk with you to a particular spot that you can actually see the whole neighborhood in relationship to the way it used to be and in relationship to the way it is now, how much of a difference uh, this project has made and how far we need to carry the next step of rebuilding this particular neighborhood. Because if you came on a weekend and the kids were outside playing, or if you came on a weekend and somebody's having a party or somebody's having uh, a second line, then you understand people are back. It's just that now we're not back in the numbers that this neighborhood used to have as before. People went out. These were, we're going up the street. We're not going far. That lot where those uh, tent uh, frames are, that was James's house. Uh, You can look at Charles and Mr. Ricks, and in between them was Gina. That's the Garris, that's the Andrews. That's Leslie, that's the Broomfield. So what I'm basically saying for me, for my immediate neighbors, I still can't say where those particular people
2: are unless somebody had contact with them. I'm sure you've been asked this question before, mm-hmm. but do you do you miss the, the visual character of, of the New Orleans style homes? These no. homes look... See, it's, it's a foolish thing to
3: think that the houses are gonna stay the same. Every neighborhood in the city is different. So making this neighborhood stay the same as any other neighborhood is, is a foolish idea. So the idea is it's not so much important how these houses look, it's only that we have these houses. What's important is we are now going to be and could be the largest energy producing neighborhood in the country because we all have solar panels. So then if you look at from a grandparent's point, I get a chance to make a difference in the lives of my grandchildren and also the air quality of this community. So why not change? Were you skeptical at first about this project? No, you got to realize at every meeting, I stood up at every meeting and said, I'm for it. You have to understand that we have to have something or somebody to to do that. And basically, I became that person. So at every meeting, I wouldn't say I had to think about it. I stand up at the meeting and said, I'm ready for it now. I'll sign up now. The time for waiting, we can walk back. The time for waiting was over, you know. If you sat around and people also asked, did we have any input? If you had input from all these different people, you would never get anything off the ground.
2: You know. How much? Yeah. How much are most of these houses
3: going for? The houses range in price because the range of these houses range from one hundred and thirty-five to one hundred and seventy-five thousand. Let me give you something
2: before I answer your question. Okay. Let me give you something I
3: question.
2: How has being um, Featured in the media, being part of this uh, Make It Right project, how has that changed you? Um, the last decade that you've now been kind of engaging with the rest of the world in a, in a different way than you were before, because you're part of this rebuilding project, and because you're now people are coming to visit your neighborhood from all over the world. Well,
3: it's not so much they're coming to visit my neighborhood. People are coming to actually do help. For me, I'm more open. But we're also diligent, we're also resilient. Basically, if you understand the tragedy of what happened to us and my two grandchildren, who literally saw their sister disappear in 25 feet of water, saw the neighborhood completely destroyed, saw their grandmother's dead body with her eyes open and a leaf in her mouth come back to the same neighborhood, past those same spots, and we don't cry. So basically what I'm saying is people have changed me from the simple fact of the matter. When I first told what happened to my mother and granddaughter, I cried. The second time I cried less, the third time a little less. So I told that a thousand times to different people. So basically I have no reason to cry.
1: And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. You've been listening to stories about changing communities in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. For more information about Making Contact and the people and groups in the show, go to radioproject.org. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Kwan Booth, Laura Flynn, George Lavender, Andrew Stelzer, Al Sasser, and Ivan Rodriguez. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.